Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On most residentially zoned lots in many American neighborhoods, it is illegal to build anything other than a single-family home. Take Sandy Springs. 85% of the Atlanta suburbs' residential land allows only for detached single-family homes. Some people want to change that, and regional leaders are passing laws to increase density. Others want things to say exactly as they were. One family... One house, one yard. Emily Badger writes about cities and urban policy for The Upshot, and she recently published a piece on the history and future of residential zoning in America. She's on the line from Washington, D.C. Emily, hello. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Evelyn Andrews. She covers Sandy Springs for Reporter Newspapers. Hello and welcome. Good morning. All right, Emily, I'm going to start with you. You call single-family zoning, quote, practically gospel in America. How did it become an American ideal? So this is an idea that is about a 100 years old. The Supreme Court said that zoning in general and single-family zoning specifically were legal in the 1920s. And after they said that, communities all over the country very rapidly adopted this concept. And basically what it says is that, you know, we want to take neighborhoods that have nothing but single-family homes in them, and we want to protect them from anything denser ever encroaching on those single-family homes. And so, you know, we're going to draw a zone over here where apartment buildings are allowed. We're going to draw zone over here where single family buildings are allowed. And over the course of the 20th century, you know, as a lot of newer suburbs, subdivisions, cities were built, uh, even older cities downzoned repeatedly uh, over a span of several decades so that we get to this point uh, in the 21st century where a vast, vast share of the residential land in most cities in America allows only a single family home. Downzoning meaning going from multiple units to just one? Right. So before the advent of zoning, you know, cities sort of developed in this, um, you know, somewhat haphazard way where a small apartment building would be built next to a single family home, next to a duplex, you know, next to, um, you know, a building that's got three or four units. And effectively over time, many cities made that kind of development illegal. They said, you know, this neighborhood that has all these different kinds of houses, now we only want to have single family homes here. From, from now on going forward, that is the only thing that can be built here. And if those four unit apartment buildings for some reason get torn down, they cannot be replaced with a four-unit apartment building. They can only be replaced by a single-family zone. So, um, Well, yeah, you so write that the problems of zoning that prioritize single-family housing are invisible. So what are we not seeing? Well, so single-family zoning is inextricably tied to a lot of other things that communities are concerned about right now. So there is a concern that they have encouraged sprawl. Um, you know, if we can't build dense enough cities, then we're going to build on greenfield areas outside of cities, and we're going to build highways out there, and people are going to spend a lot of time in their cars, and they're going to create a lot of auto emissions. So there's a concern among some environmentalists that single-family zoning contributes 
to making it very difficult to address climate change. You know, if developing denser cities is one solution to climate change, single-family zoning makes that very difficult. There's another set of concerns that baked into these ideas from the very beginning has been, uh, you know, different kinds of exclusion. Poor people shouldn't live near wealthy people. In effect, uh, non-whites are in many communities sort of blocked from living in communities that are predominantly white, uh, just because whites are much more likely to be homeowners in this country. And so single-family zoning is viewed as being tied to racial inequality in many communities. Um, so, so there's a number of different things going on here, whether it has to do with racial injustice and, and sort of the history of racial injustice or climate change um, or, you know, just sort of economic opportunity for lower-income people to be able to access things like good schools. All of those things are baked into this concept of zoning, which, you know, most of us don't really ever pay any attention to. Well, there are some municipalities who are eliminating single-family zoning, like Minneapolis. So what was the goal there, and, and what was the result? Yeah, so Minneapolis did this really shocking thing in December, which they, they were the first major country or major city in the United States that said, we're just going to get rid of single family zoning entirely. So 70% of the residential land in Minneapolis is zoned only for single family homes. And the city council there voted in December to say, okay, overnight, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to say on any single family lot in the city, you are allowed to build a two or three unit building, not just a one unit sort of detached single family home. And um, they did this in Minneapolis in part because, you know, they're, they're in the midst of um, a, a very deep conversation there about racial inequality. Minneapolis is a city where the white homeownership rate is vastly higher than the black homeownership rate, the non-white homeownership rate. There is a great concern in Minneapolis that, you know, while it's this model city in many ways, uh, it has a lot of problems with racial inequality. And that that is a large part what the conversation was about there in addressing this. So the argument, there are arguments pro and con for single family zoning that you present in your article. Could you share some of the concerns of homeowners who do want single families homes to remain the norm or the law of the land? So a lot of those concerns are expressed in these, these much more kind of concrete concerns that people have about their quality of life. So things like, uh, I won't be able to find a parking spot on my street, or my child's classroom will become overcrowded, or maybe the infrastructure, the roads, the sewer system doesn't have the capacity in my neighborhood to have many more people in it. So on the one hand, you know, cities are having this conversation about these very kind of high-level concerns having to do with climate change or housing affordability or racial inequality. But then on the other hand, a lot of the pushback against that is saying, no, 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 no. The, this, is, this is not about sort of these big sweeping ideals. This is about the quality of life of individual people in actual neighborhoods. And we shouldn't do anything to damage that because we think we're going to create fairer cities by eliminating this idea when we don't really know if that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And most of those people are taxpayers. They're paying property taxes. So which side do you think has the better case or maybe I should ask the better chances of really setting an agenda here? Well, single-family zoning is so deeply entrenched in America. I mean, this has been the normal way of developing and planning cities for decades. Uh, politicians on both the left and right, this really is not a partisan issue at all, uh, have, have bought into and supported this. Um, and... Uh, 
voters are overwhelmingly homeowners. Uh, the people who would like to maintain the status quo sort of exert more uh, power in the political process and in these debates than renters do, uh, than people who are likely to benefit from this change. So, you know, this is this is sort of a radical idea, and it's a radical idea that's pushing back against a lot of people who are not going to want to see change. Mm. So, uh, you know, while it's sort of remarkable that Minneapolis did this, I don't necessarily think we're going to see kind of every city across the country sweepingly get rid of these things the way they, you know, sort of sweepingly all adopted them in the 20s and 30s. But I, I do think that, you know, this is a conversation that we're hearing in more and more places. And prior to Minneapolis doing this, this was really sort of an unthinkable thing for a city to do. And now that one major city has done it, a lot of people are going, maybe it's not as unthinkable as we thought it was. Mm, Emily Badger there, writer for The New York Times, The Upshot blog, speaking with us about zoning. And we are going to get some perspective from local, uh, uh, from a local suburb, Sandy Springs. Evelyn Andrews is with us. She covers Sandy Springs for the Reporter newspaper. Evelyn, 85% of residential land in Sandy Springs is zoned for single-family homes, but still many homeowners are concerned about zoning changes. What, what kind of changes has Sandy Springs seen in recent years? Well, in 2017, the city actually passed a new development code, which made 67%, roughly 67% of the city, a protected neighborhood, which keeps those single-family home neighborhoods intact and protected from any development, because that's one of the city's main goals. And we have heard the same kind of things, you know, congestion schools, transience mm -hmm. is a quote that is often used. Right. And yeah. What does that mean? So, you know, even though they have those uh, those protected neighborhoods, there have been some mixed use developments coming along the major corridors, which is something the city wants to encourage. Um, but single family homeowners still had concerns about the traffic that that brings. And also they had concerns about some of the um, short term leases that they were offering when they first opened and just feeling like the people that live there aren't like committed to the city, willing to stay there. Um, there's also an argument some people make that the reason people li leave the sort of a lower income affordable housing on the northern end of the city is because they are chasing lower rents after a year. That's why they're leaving after a year. It's not because they're leaving the city. They're leaving a different to a different apartment complex to get a lower price. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, census data does show Sandy Springs is one of the most rapidly growing areas in the country. So do you have a sense of the direction things are heading in Sandy Springs? Can current zoning policies support that? Well, in the comprehensive plan that they pass, you know, they're, they're trying to grapple with being a growing city and protecting the neighborhoods because that's one of the main reasons the city was founded in 2005 to begin with is because of the they didn't like some of the development that Fulton County was approving. So right now their plan is to concentrate that development on the major corridors and bring that downtown feel they want to have and that walkability. So that's their, their plan now. And uh, although some single family homeowners have concerns that the infrastructure can handle bringing that sudden influx of a lot of residents to the, uh, one area. So, Emily, I'm curious, where does this fear of apartments come from? I mean, obviously, the, the, the birth of the suburbs was about getting out of the city, pursuing a quieter, more traditional version of suburban life. I think apartments are equated with renters. And there's this idea that recurs in debates all over the country that, you know, says renters, uh, they don't vote, they don't participate in elections, they don't take care of their neighborhoods, they're not as invested in their school systems. And the, the subtext of some of that is that, you know, in, in some ways, they're, they're not full participants in the community. Uh, they're not going to care about it as much as the rest of us do. And so a, a lot of this fear of multifamily buildings, I do think, is... Uh, 
um, sort of bound up in a fear of renters. And, you know, just just because of the dynamics of racial inequality we have in this country, the renter population is also much more likely to be a non-white population. So it's a little bit difficult to sort of disentangle how much of people's fears here is about low-income people, how much is about renter people, how much is about non-white neighbors, um, because all of those groups sort of overlap in who we're talking about here. Uh, but, but this is certainly sort of a theme that recurs in, in these debates in every community. And, you know, one of the challenges here in having debates about this is that there are lots of sort of coded ways for people to talk about what they object to, uh, and we may not always entirely understand what they are really concerned about. Mm. Well, you uh, putting an end to single-family housing, this is a policy choice that has even made its way into a few presidential campaign platforms. What are candidates promising? So Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Julian Castro have all suggested that the federal government should withhold some money for things like community development block grants to cities that have these really exclusionary uh, zoning policies. Kind of the worst of the worst offenders would be, for example, a suburb that says not just we're only going to zone for single family, but we're only going to allow single family lots on, say, 10,000 square foot lots. You know, that that's uh, akin to saying only people who can afford really expensive expensive mansions on very large lots can live in this community. Mm-hmm. And so so you know, the federal government really has almost no control over zoning. It is a very local issue in America um, and it has always been that way. That's an important principle to a lot of communities that they retain local control over this. But one thing that the federal government could potentially do is say we're going to wield some of the money that we dole out to communities to try to encourage them to change these laws. Emily, half a minute left. You write that undoing these policies, nothing new, but actually a, quote, return to the past. Can you quickly summarize that for us? Sure. Well, before single-family zoning came into effect, communities developed the way a lot of people would like to see them develop now. You know, it's not that you can't have single-family homes, but that those single-family homes may be next door to a duplex, may be next door to, you know, a mid-rise apartment building. And in effect, if we removed single-family zoning, that's what we would probably see again, not, you know, a 20-story apartment building next to a single-family home, but sort of smaller mid-rise things sprinkled in among them. Emily Badger, New York Times writer for the Upshot blog. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Evelyn Andrews, thank you so much for coming in to talk about Sandy Springs. She's a reporter for, she is a reporter for Reporter Newspapers. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, you can join the conversation. What do you think? There goes the neighborhood, or do you welcome density? Coming up, barbecue. It's a noun, a verb. It unites, divides, and it's slow-cooked into American history, politics, and culture. We'll slice some off when On Second Thought continues.